Well, let's take our Bibles and turn to John chapter 12. If you're visiting today uh, with us here at Lakeside, we've been going through the Gospel of John together as a church, and we've arrived at John chapter 12, and we're going to be looking at the first uh, 12, uh, first 11 verses here of, of John chapter 12. Let me read them uh, as we begin. John chapter 12, verse 1. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving, but Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples who was intending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people? Now he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. Therefore Jesus said, Let her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. The large crowd of the Jews then learned that he was there, and they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. But the chief priests planned to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. Father, we thank you for your word, and what a privilege it is to have it, and to listen to it preached every Sunday, and Lord, we just are looking forward to uh, hearing what you have to say to us this morning. I pray that you would speak very clearly to each and every heart here. Lord, if there's those who need to be comforted, Lord, that you would comfort them through your word. If there's those that need to be confronted or convicted, Father, that you would confront and convict them this morning. And Lord, if we know all of us need to be more conformed to the likeness of Christ. And so I pray that that would take place as well, Lord. We need your help now. Help us to understand what's here and how it applies to our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, one of the ways that uh, Kelly and I like to express our gratitude to others who have done something nice for us, something kind to us, is we'll either take them out to dinner or we'll have them into our home for supper. I'm sure many of you are in the habit of doing the same thing. And This is how Mary and Martha and Lazarus chose to thank Jesus for raising Lazarus from the dead. In the first 11 verses of John chapter 12, John recounted the dinner party that he and Jesus and the rest of the disciples attended in the home of Simon the leper. You say, where did you get that from? Well, stay tuned for more details. But I think the thing we need to notice here today is that John revealed how through Mary's memorable act of love, this celebration of Lazarus's life turned into a preparation for the Lord's death. Let me say that again, that through Mary's memorable act of love, this celebration of Lazarus's life turned into a preparation for the Lord's death. Now, there are several references in the Gospels to women anointing Jesus uh, with oil, Uh, We already read one of those before communion in Luke chapter 7, where this immoral woman, probably an ex-prostitute, who Jesus had had forgiven, uh, had saved, 
uh, came uninvited to this dinner party at the house of Simon the Pharisee, and she began weeping at Jesus' feet. She was so overwhelmed with gratitude for her forgiveness that she began to cry, and, and, the, and her tears fell on the feet of Jesus, and so she, in an embarrassed way, uh, wanted to wipe those off, and so she let down her hair, and she began to wipe uh, the tears off with her hair, and she was kissing his feet and anointing them with perfume all at the same time, and so Jesus, again, responded by reaffirming that her sins were forgiven, and then he contrasted her love with Solomon's lack of love, her, her much love with his little love, which was merely an indication that he didn't feel the need to be forgiven. Why? Because he wasn't a sinner like she was. We know what those Pharisees were like, right? Father, thank you that I'm not like that other guy, right? Self-righteous. Well, we know that this is clearly not the same incident uh, Luke chapter 7 and John chapter, 11, uh, John, John chapter 12. However, both Matthew and Mark recorded a similar incident uh, with an unnamed woman anointing Jesus' head with costly perfume in the home of Simon the leper in Bethany, which is clearly the same incident. Even though they both place, Matthew and Mark place this event after Jesus' triumphal entry and John placed it before the triumphal entry. I think the, the, the details are so uh, virtually identical that there's no way to deny that these are the same exact event. In fact, turn back to Matthew chapter 26 because I want you to see uh, what Matthew had to say about this event, kind of provide some color commentary to uh, our study here in John. But in Matthew chapter 26... Verse 6, Matthew says, Now when Jesus was in Bethany at the house or the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. But the disciples were indignant when they saw this and said, Why this waste? For this perfume might have been sold for a high price and the money given to the poor. Sound familiar? But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you bother the woman? For she has done a good thing. She has done good, a good deed to me, for you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. For when she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. And then notice how he ends. Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. And then flip over to Mark, Mark chapter 14. Notice this parallel account here, Mark chapter 14, verses 3 through 9. Mark chapter 14, verse 3, while he was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper and reclining at the table, there came a woman with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume of pure nard, and she broke the vial and poured it over his head. But some were indignantly remarking to one another, why was this perfume why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for over 300 denarii and the money given to the poor. And they were scolding her. Sound familiar? But Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you bother her? She has done a good deed to me, for you always have the poor with you, and whatever you wish, you can do good to them, but you do not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for the burial. And then notice, same response here, same ending Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. Well, when John 
got to writing his gospel, uh, Mary's memorable act of lavish love for Jesus was already well known. Uh, Jesus said, hey, wherever the gospel spreads, uh, this story is going to follow along with it. And it's going to be told in the same breath. Uh, this, this woman who, who, who demonstrated this great love in preparing me for my burial. And he already mentioned in John chapter 11, verse 2, when he was introducing the scene of Lazarus' death and resurrection, it says, Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. And so all he he had to do was make a quick little reference to this woman named Mary who anointed Jesus with oil and and, uh, wiped it with her hair, and, 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 and there was an instant connection. Why? Because as Jesus promised, this story, this account, this event would have been proclaimed far and wide along with the gospel message. And so that's why I chose to title this message, The Gospel of Mary. It may sound sacrilegious a bit. Uh, because there's no such thing as the gospel of Mary. We know that. Uh, there's only the gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And yet Mary's testimony of her extravagant devotion towards the Lord Jesus Christ has been proclaimed to the entire world and continues to serve as a powerful witness to people everywhere. And so it's sort of the gospel of Mary, if you will. And we know that while the resurrection of Lazarus motivated Mary to to express her great love to Christ, it also motivated others to express their great hatred for Christ. And this last great miracle that John recorded in Jesus' public ministry of raising Lazarus from the dead really stirred up all sorts of emotions and resulted in all sorts of reactions. And in this particular passage, John captured this wide range of emotions and reactions. And we see in these 11 verses, uh, people loving Jesus, and we see people hating him. We see people wanting to serve him, and, and, and other people's wanting to kill him. We see devotion to Christ, and we see opposition to Christ. We see loyalty and hostility side by side. We see sincerity, and we see hypocrisy. And so when Jesus called Lazarus out of the tomb after being dead for four days, it flushed out who was who and what was what. He knew who was his friend and who was his foe. And we know that many of those who witnessed that miracle placed their faith in him as their Messiah. We, we learned that back in chapter 11, verse 45. Last week, however, we saw how the hard-hearted religious leaders of Israel doubled down on their decision to kill Jesus, and they gave orders that if anyone knew where he was, they were to report it to them so they could arrest him. And now we see how the Sanhedrin were also planning to kill Lazarus. It wasn't really enough to just kill one man. Remember, Caiaphas said, hey, just one man for the nation. Well, now it's up to two. And before the thing was over, there was a lot more people dead than just Jesus. And their problem, their concern was, as the Sanhedrin, is all these people were coming to Christ as a result of what happened to Lazarus. And yet, Lazarus and his two sisters, Mary and Martha, proved to be Jesus' loyal friends by being willing to really put their lives on the line in order to show him 
how much they appreciated all that he had done for them. And so ironically, it was their sincerity, it was their selfless loyalty that exposed the hypocrisy and the the selfish treachery of one of Jesus' own disciples who would ultimately betray him to the chief priests who were looking for a way to arrest him. And so really this, this whole uh, account here, these first 11 verses, is, is simply that the plot thickens. The plot thickens. And uh, as you know, I read a ton of commentaries every week just to make sure I understand uh, any given passage. And I, you know, as, as the saying goes, I, I milk a lot of cows, but I churn my own butter. Uh, I usually come up with my own outline, my own um, you know, propositional statement and things like that. But uh, this week, I, I just chose to borrow someone else's because it was so good. And uh, one commentator was just so helpful uh, with this particular passage. I'm just going to borrow his outline if you don't mind, okay? Um, because it was, it was I, couldn't, I couldn't beat it. I couldn't match it. And uh, basically, what we see in this passage, and this commentator points it out, is, is five reactions to Jesus. Five reactions to Jesus here. And we see, first of all, heartfelt service demonstrated by Martha. We see humble sacrifice demonstrated by Mary. We see hypocritical self-interest demonstrated by Judas. We see hollow superficiality demonstrated by the Jews. And then finally, we see hostile scheming demonstrated by the Sanhedrin. So let's look at these reactions together. First of all, heartfelt service demonstrated by Martha. Look at verse 1. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Now, this is a a very important time marker uh, that John gives us here. This is the third Passover uh, that that he's mentioned, uh, and this is how we get the timeline of Jesus' public ministry was about three years because he went to three Passover celebrations, the annual Passover in Jerusalem. The big question in everybody's mind at this particular Passover was, was he going to show his face in Jerusalem in light of all that was coming down on him? Well... He's coming, and uh, he's on his way, and uh, he passes through the village of Bethany, which was about two miles away from Jerusalem on the east side of the Mount of Olives. Now, remember, he had recently fled from here with his disciples to Ephraim, which was on the edge of the wilderness in case he needed to make a quick getaway after he had found out that the Sanhedrin had decided to kill him. And so while many were opposed to him, there were still some who stayed true to him, namely his dear friends in Bethany. And so on his way to Passover, Jesus swung back through there to enjoy some sweet fellowship with Mary and with Martha and the recently resurrected Lazarus. But notice it says there, therefore, six days before the Passover. Jesus knew that a week from now, he would be in the ground. He would be in the grave. And this would be potentially the last opportunity he had to spend time with these precious people. And so notice what happens, verse 2. So they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving, but Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. According to Matthew and Mark, uh, Jesus and the disciples were invited to dinner, not at Mary and Martha's house, which you might assume, right? But it was at Simon the leper's house, who was likely another guy that Jesus had healed. And he was referred to as Simon the leper, or maybe probably the former leper, right? 
Um, and this was really an ideal occasion for Mary and Martha to express their gratitude, their appreciation to Jesus for bringing their brother back to life. And true to their personalities, Martha was doing what? Serving. Sweating in the kitchen, right? Wiping down the tables. While Mary was doing what we always find Mary doing, what? Sitting at the feet of Jesus and wiping perfume on them with her hair. Now, we're given our first introduction to Mary and Martha and their personalities back in Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, verse 38. This is a familiar passage. Let me just remind you of it. Luke chapter 10, verse 38. Now, as they were traveling along, he entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister called Mary who was seated at the Lord's feet listening to his word. But Martha was distracted with all her preparations and she came up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Then tell her to help me. But the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you're worried and bothered about so many things, but only one thing is necessary, for Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. Well, we meet these ladies at the first time they were taking care of Jesus in their home, and uh, Martha was a little frazzled, to say the least, right? And uh, she was running around like a chicken with her head cut off, and uh, she wasn't the only thing boiling over in the kitchen, right? She was uh, pretty upset that she had all this work to do, and as often as the case, ladies, you, you're, you're trying to get everything done, you don't have enough time, and you see everybody else just sitting around, talking, doing nothing. And you start, you know, your blood pressure starts to rise, and next thing you know, you lash out at somebody, and that's what Martha did. She lashed out of all people at Jesus. Said, Jesus, don't you care? Here I am working, doing all this work, and you're my little sister, there she is, sitting there, not doing anything. And he gently rebuked her and said, Martha, relax, Okay appreciate all the work that you're going to to serve us so well and but you know what you're just you're just way too stressed out okay you're way too worried and bothered about so many things listen mary did the right thing she's doing what's most important that's sitting here learning from me now i think oftentimes we throw martha under the bus don't we right don't be martha be mary well i like what i like about john here is because it shows us again this is her personality this is the way god wired her it says that Martha was serving. And there's nothing wrong with serving, right? And, and again, we don't necessarily see her with a bad attitude this time, right? Because it appears that Mary maybe was helping this time before she took a break to anoint Jesus' feet with oil. But uh, the point is this, that, that, that Mary, um, as one person said, expressed her love for Jesus with perspiration and Mary expressed her love for Jesus with perfume. All right, this all ties to people. And, and, and we all got to learn to, to humbly serve and, and really have heartfelt service uh, to the Lord like, like Martha. She was doing a good thing. She was serving the Lord, and this was her way of, of expressing her love for Jesus. And as one commentator said, although it tends to be overshadowed by Mary's dramatic act of worship, Martha's humble service on this occasion was no less commendable and pleasing to the Lord. And so here we have a faithful saint uh, who was just serving the Lord in a very genuine, sincere, heartfelt way. Secondly, we see humble sacrifice in Mary. Verse 3, Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her, with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. 
And so at some point during the course of the meal, Mary approached Jesus and anointed his feet with a bottle of very expensive perfume. John calls it pure nard or spike nard, as if you ever go to Israel, that's what they'll call it. You'll guys get guys coming up to you and trying to sell you these little things called spike nard, which is, hey, this is what Mary you know, anointed Jesus' feet with, and you need to buy some of this, right? It's probably water, something diluted down, right? It's not, not this stuff, because this stuff is extremely expensive. Why? Because it was imported from northern India. It was extracted from the roots of this aromatic herb, and it was put in sealed alabaster boxes or flasks, and it was sent to Israel and opened only on special occasions. And so based on its worth, as we're going to see in just a moment, it was likely Mary's most prized possession, or possibly even her family's entire inheritance, their life savings. And in those days, because this kind of perfume was a very precious commodity, sometimes people would buy it kind of like gold, and they would invest in that, and they would keep that, and then if they needed money, they would sell part of it off uh, to, to, to live on. And so this was a shocking, spontaneous, sacrificial, even scandalous display of affection and devotion to Christ. I want to encourage you to write maybe some of those words down. Shocking. Spontaneous, sacrificial, scandalous. And to maybe think this afternoon or this evening or when you discuss this message with your grow group tonight or later this week or in your quiet time this week, that could any of those words describe your worship, your devotion to Christ? Spontaneous, sacrificial, scandalous even? See, in those days, they didn't eat sitting around a table in chairs like we do. They would recline around a low table, leaning on one arm and eating with the other arm. And so uh, that's why Mary would have access to Jesus' feet here, because their feet would be sticking out away from the table, which is that's where you'd want them. If you're having supper, you don't want somebody's stinky feet, right, in your face, um, who's been walking around Israel in sandals, Right? Matthew and Mark said that she broke the bottle and poured it on Jesus' head, whereas John here says that she put it on his feet. You're like, see, I knew I couldn't trust the scriptures. There's all these contradictions. One, one place it says head, the other place it says feet. I don't believe the Bible. Well, it's really rather simple to, to harmonize these stories that based on the size of the bottle of perfume, it says a pound here, probably about 12 ounces um, in our measurements today, um, when she poured that amount of perfume on Jesus' head, naturally it would run down his head and his body and then pool at his feet. And then she used her hair kind of as a mop to, to mop it up off the floor and apply it to his feet. She didn't want any of it to go to waste. Now, what was so scandalous about this is because Jesus or, or Jewish women uh, didn't eat with men. They would always serve the men and, and uh, you know, maybe eat in the kitchen and the men would be in the, in, the, in the dining room together. And also Jewish women never let their hair down in public or in the presence of any other man but her husband. And so Mary was going against the, the, the decorum of the day in this unashamed, uninhibited act of worship to the Lord. And I think we should ask ourselves, again, is our worship... Sacrificial is our worship spontaneous? Is our worship 
sacrificial? Is it, is it uh, scandalous even? I think sometimes our worship is safe. It's predictable. It's mechanical. It's, it's inhibited. Inhibited? Can you say that? Inhibited? You got what I said, right? In other words, we're way too concerned about what people think of us. If we say something or do something, right, out of love for Christ, well, what do they think if I, if I raise my hand? When I'm singing a song, well, what might that guy next to me think? Or that person think behind me, right? We, we're, we're too inhibited. We think about what, what would the Lord, I mean, what would that, what does other people think? And Mary didn't care what others thought about her. She just wanted Jesus to know how much she loved him. And that's why she was willing to give her very best to him and, and would never consider offering him anything that cost her nothing. That was David's commitment. You remember 2 Samuel 24, 24, when someone wanted to offer to offer to donate some land and offer and even donate the animals to offer a sacrifice to the Lord. And David said, no way. I will never offer something to God that costs me nothing. And he insisted on paying for the land and for the, even for the bulls and everything to, for the sacrifice. One commentator said this, that Mary was simply saying, in effect, that there was nothing too valuable to give to Christ. He is worthy of everything that we have and everything that we are. Here was a woman who models humble sacrifice. Now, in contrast to this, this is when the story gets a little ugly. We see hypocritical self-interest Displayed by Judas in verse 4. Notice, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was intending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people? Now he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as, and as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. Well, this is not the first time that John mentioned that Judas was the one who would betray Jesus. He's already introduced us to him back in John chapter 6. If you remember verse 70, Jesus answered them, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. And so while this is not the time we meet Judas, this is the first time we hear Judas. These are the first words uh, found anywhere in the Gospels that he spoke. Uh, interesting, his last words are recorded in Matthew chapter 27, verse 4. The last words out of his mouth, at least recorded in Scripture, were this, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And he said that right before he went out and what? Committed suicide. Well, Judas here in John chapter 12 seemed to be highly offended that Mary had wasted such an expensive bottle of perfume just cleaning Jesus' feet. I mean, that's what the water's for. Why waste this precious perfume? And according to, to Matthew and Mark, if you remember, the other disciples agreed. And they started scolding Mary as well, along with Judas. You say, what was the big deal? Well, the big deal was 300 denarii. That was the big deal. One denarii was one day's wage, so 300 denarii was equivalent to a year's wages for an average working man. Uh, if you take out the, the Sabbath days and all the holy days where you couldn't work, it would average about 300 denarii. So imagine, right, whatever you make annually, your annual salary, 
whether it's this much or this much, if you decided I'm going to spend that all on something for Jesus. I'm just going to spend it all. I think there would be some eyebrows raised. I think there would be some people questioning you, some people protesting, objecting um, to you doing that. But notice what Judas was doing here. He suggested that 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 perfume should have been sold and the money given to help feed and clothe the poor. Well, John wants us to be sure that we know that that was just pure hypocrisy. He didn't care about the poor. He didn't care about Jesus. All he cared about was himself. And again, in verse 6, his apparent selfish or selflessness was a disguise for his own selfishness. And while John didn't realize it at the time, now he was writing right years later, he knew that Jesus was a, or Judas was a what? A thief. He was a crook who had been embezzling money from the disciples' treasury for his own selfish, greedy purposes. And the reason why he got so hacked off that Mary had wasted all this perfume was that was 300 more denarii that he could have been pilfering from. I think this is interesting here. It says that he was... He had the money box. In other words, he was the disciples' treasurer. The treasure of the disciples. What should that indicate to us? You don't give the money box, right? The responsibility to watch over the money, to spend the money, to save the money. You don't, you don't pass that responsibility on or entrust that to some crook, to some thief. You, you give it to the most trustworthy guy in the room. And so I think we, we, we can assume here that everyone thought this guy was trustworthy. He, he was the last guy anyone would have expected to betray Jesus. If you don't believe me, notice uh, John 13. In the next chapter, John 13, this is in the upper room where Jesus announces, he's been saying, he's been hinting that someone was going to betray him, and, and, and here he announces it. He points him out. John 13, verse 21, when Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. The disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know of which one he was speaking. It wasn't like they automatically thought, oh, I, I, I know it is, it's Judas. That guy's a snake, man. I never liked that guy to begin with, right? They, that thought didn't even cross their mind. They were at a loss. There was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Hint, hint, that's John, right? That's his way of referring to himself. So Simon Peter gestured to him and said, Psst, hey, John, see if you can tell, ask him who it is. Who's he talking about? And leaning back thus on Jesus' bosom said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus then answered, this is the one, that is the one from whom, for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. So he took a piece of bread or something, and a morsel of bread, and dipped it in something and handed it to Judas. And after the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Therefore Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. Now no one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said this to him. For some were supposing, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus was saying to him, buy the things we have need of for the feast, or else that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately, and it was night. 
Even when Judas left, fled into the night with the money box, they, they still didn't have a clue. Even though Jesus pointed out, this is the guy right here. This is the guy, Judas is going to betray me. It still didn't connect that it was possible. They couldn't even conceive of that possibility. By the way, according to Matthew and Mark, it was immediately following this incident in John chapter 12 that Judas went to the chief priests and agreed to help them arrest Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, which, by the way, was the price of a slave. And so Jesus' rebuke here of Judas at Bethany played a big part in his decision to betray Jesus. And I think it was the fact that Jesus was coming out loud and clear that he was going to die. And then again, it just, it just served to motivate Judas to cut his losses and get out while the getting was good because Judas was one of, those, uh, one of, one of many in those days who were expecting Jesus to, to overthrow Rome and to, to set up his messianic kingdom here on earth. And he was likely anticipating a, a being appointed to some kind of cabinet position you know, in Jesus' earthly kingdom you know, because he was on the inside, he was in, in, in Jesus' inner circle. But, but once he realized that Jesus was going to be arrested and killed and that he wasn't going to get rich or powerful riding on Jesus' coattails, well, then he became disillusioned and he decided to betray him. And one commentator says it this way, it was his personal greed, not social need, that prompted his reaction. The betrayer had started down the road to destruction by giving in to the seemingly minor sin of seeking to profit personally from commitment to Jesus. His dishonesty in a relatively little thing paved the way for deceit in a great thing later on. In other words, his, it all started with just a small sin. Just, just something minor. I'll just, you know, just, just a few bucks. I'll just, I'll just take a few dollars. It's not, it's not a big, nobody's going to miss it. No big deal. It's only a few bucks. Right? Next thing you know, you're taking a hundred bucks. Next thing you know, you're taking a thousand bucks. Next thing you know, right? We all love Luke 16.10 where Jesus said, He who is faithful in very little thing is faithful also in much. In other words, hey, if you're faithful in little things, I'm going to entrust you with greater things, right? We love that verse. I don't know where, where I've been all these years, but I, I don't know that I've ever seen the second half of that verse. He says, And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. In other words, if you start being unrighteous and ungodly in little areas, little compromises, it's only a matter of time before you're doing some major sins. You're committing some major unrighteousness. And so here we see this stark contrast here between, between a, a, a true believer in Mary, right, and a false believer in Judas. Here, Mary was selfish, she was sacrificial. Judas was selfish, he was, he was stingy. And this is, this is the scary part. Don't miss this, guys. Listen. The, the fact that the other disciples were swayed by Judas and followed his lead in scolding and criticizing Mary indicates that they not only assumed that he was a devoted follower of Christ, but they looked up to him as a spiritual leader. How does that happen? How does somebody follow Jesus for three years and see all his miracles and hear every sermon he preached and yet end up rejecting him and going to hell? 
Listen, this is not the safest place to be on Sunday mornings is in church. Now, there was no safer place on the planet than one of Jesus' disciples, right? And yet one of his own disciples is in hell today because he was an almost Christian, as Billy talked about a few weeks ago. Or maybe we could say a convenient Christian or a convenient so-called Christian, someone who followed Christ as long as Christ served his purposes. He used Jesus as a ladder for his own ambitions until the rungs ran out and he was like, I don't need that ladder anymore. And we know people like that, right? Who just kind of come to church out of convenience. They, they are involved because of what they can get from it. And, and, and as soon as they realize it's not all panning out the way they hoped it, they're gone. Don't be that guy. <laughs> Don't be Judas. Notice how Jesus rebuked him. Verse 7, let her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. And again, I don't think he was just talking to Judas here. He was talking to the other disciples who had chimed in with him. Hey, guys, leave her alone. Let, cut her some slack here, okay? And so he defended Mary's apparent wastefulness as, as fitting, as appropriate, that she was preparing his body for burial. And as I already mentioned, in exactly one week, Jesus would be dead. He would be buried. And in those days, lavish sums of money were spent on perfumes and on oils to, 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 to mask the smell of decaying flesh. And that's how the bodies were prepared for burial. Now, when he says, let her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial, and Matthew and Mark says that she, she was preparing his body for burial, we're not sure to what extent Mary understood the significance of her actions. I mean, this may be similar to Caiaphas' statement last week, right, about one man dying for the people. Uh, he, he didn't have a clue what he was saying, right? It sounded good to him. It was just something he said out of expedience, but he, he unwittingly prophesied about the coming uh, or the death of Christ, the substitutionary atonement of Christ. That may be the case here, that her, her act of, of worship may have revealed more than she even realized at the time. But the reason why I had us read Matthew and Mark and their account of this same story is because they make it sound like Mary maybe knew what, exactly what she was doing. And apparently she was the only one who fully grasped the reality of Christ's impending death. And it's not that he hadn't told them already. He had made it clear to them. He told his disciples on numerous occasions that he was going to die, but for some reason they didn't believe it. They didn't understand it. And, and even after he died and came back to life, he had to kind of walk them through it all and say, now guys, remember I told you this was going to happen. And they're like, oh yeah, you did. I remember that. Oh yeah, it all makes sense now. But Mary got it. Why? Well, where do we always find Mary? Sitting at the feet of Jesus, right? Hanging on every word that came out of his mouth. And again, every time we see Mary mentioned in the Gospels, she was at Jesus' feet. Last week we saw her in John 11, right? She fell at his feet weeping when he came to, uh, to see her, her dead brother. Luke chapter 10, she, she was at his feet while Mary was running around. She was sitting there. 
the point is this, this is what happens when you take the time to sit at the feet of Jesus. Not only do you grow in your love and your devotion to Christ, but you also gain greater insight and discernment than those who don't spend time sitting in the feet of Jesus. So if you're sitting here this morning, you don't know a whole lot about Jesus. You don't know a whole lot about God's word. You don't know a whole lot about what it means to be a Christian. Some of that is maybe you're just a new Christian. But if you've been a Christian for a number of years and you still don't know a whole lot about being a Christian, it's because you're not sitting at the feet of Jesus. You're not, you're not spending time in, in God's word and in prayer. And if you want to grow in your, in your knowledge and discernment of God and his will for your life, you need to spend time in the word. You need to spend time in prayer. James Montgomery Boyce shared a story in his commentary about a young boy who was riding on a train with a well-known Bible teacher, somebody that he looked up to and revered, and the teacher was sitting there across the way reading his Bible while the boy was reading the newspaper. And Finally, the boy got up the guts and he looked over at his mentor and he said, I wish I knew the Bible as well as you. And the teacher responded in a very kind manner. He said, you'll never get to know it by reading the newspaper. And the boy got the message and put away the newspaper and got the Bible out and began to read. And so Jesus was saying essentially here that, hey, you know what? Mary's getting this. Mary knows what's going on. She's, she's the only one here out of all of you who understands what I'm about to do. And she's expressing her love for what I'm about to do for her and what I'm going to do for you. Verse 8, for you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. Again, don't think that Jesus was saying, hey, blow off the poor. The poor don't matter. They're always going to be around. They're an un- unsolvable problem. No, he wasn't implying that we shouldn't help the poor. Jesus showed great compassion to the poor. He helped them tremendously, and so should we as his followers. Benevolence is biblical. His, his point was very simple. Listen, I'm only going to be here for another few days, and you need to take advantage of that and show love to Christ, love to me while I'm here on this earth. And so here was Judas showing this hypocritical self-interest. Now quickly, let's look at these other two reactions. Fourthly, hollow superficiality. Hollow superficiality demonstrated by the crowds. Notice verse 9. The large crowd of the Jews then learned that he was there, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see who? Lazarus whom he raised from the dead. In other words, Lazarus had become like the main attraction, right? If you're going to a circus, and in the center ring, right? We have a Lazarus risen from the dead. And everybody came to gawk at at Lazarus. And it was impossible at this point for Jesus to go anywhere without being noticed. And so people quickly found out that he was there in Bethany. And so they came in droves, but they came not just to see Jesus. They wanted to see Lazarus. These were the thrill seekers. These were the the miracle mongers, if you will. These were the same people who, who would shout Hosanna when Jesus entered into Jerusalem in the very next passage. And then just a few days later, they'd be the same people crying what? Crucify him. And so this was hollow superficiality. These people didn't have the right motives. They weren't going out to see Jesus uh, purely motivated. They were just out kind of looking for the miracle boy. And then finally, we have hostile scheming. Hostile scheming demonstrated by the Sanhedrin, verse 10. But the chief priests planned to put Lazarus 
to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. So the chief priests here, we learned last week, were representative of the Sanhedrin, and they had put Lazarus on their hit list right next to Jesus. Why? Because he was Jesus' star witness. And so they wanted to knock him off. Um, They wanted to destroy the evidence that was causing many people to believe in Jesus. And so not only was Lazarus' resurrection undeniable proof of Jesus' divine power that he was who he said he was, but it was also reality or proof of the reality of resurrection which the chief priests, most of which were Sadducees, denied. So Lazarus made the Sadducees and the chief priests look bad. Because it rebuked their doctrinal convictions. You're like, hey, wait a minute. I thought you guys said there was no such thing as a resurrection, but uh, you got this guy who resurrected from the dead. And they're like, uh, yeah, I know. It's kind of awkward, right? So it kind of undermined them. And so they needed to get rid of that guy because he was making them look bad. And, and just for a second, I mean, Lazarus was mentioned a number of times in this passage. But notice there's nothing specific about what he said or did. He was just like there. Lazarus is there. And, and nowhere in the New Testament do, do we ever see Lazarus saying anything or, or doing anything other than, you know, getting sick and dying and obeying the voice of Christ to come out of the tomb. Lazarus come forth. And then he, was, he showed up at his, I don't know what you call it. It's not a birthday party. It's a resurrection party, right? He shows up at that thing. And yet he was one of the most effective witnesses for Christ who ever lived. And you're like, well, yeah, it would help if I rose from the dead too, right? That's, that's helpful, right? To have that on your spiritual resume. Oh, yeah, I was dead and I, Jesus brought me back to life. But the point is that, that Lazarus' life just spoke for itself. And that's what should happen to our lives, right? Our lives should just speak for themselves. It, it, our lives should just proclaim the gospel to others every day. We're either, we're either drawing people to Christ or we're driving people away from Christ. And I appreciate what Kent Hughes said. He, he said, every believer's life has been so changed that the only way it can be accounted for is the power of Christ. If we have new life and are fellowshipping with Christ, as was Lazarus, we are great arguments for the gospel, unanswerable proofs of the reality of Jesus Christ. Listen, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, and so was I. But now we're alive in Christ. And it should show. It should show. Our lives should speak for themselves. Well, we can't help but go back to the example of Mary. What a, what a great um, model she is of, of, of love and devotion to Christ. And notice it says that when she poured that perfume on Jesus, that the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. I mean, it just, just her act of worship just permeated everything and everyone around her. And that's why James Montgomery Boyce said this, if you're not a blessing to other people, if seeing you does not make them think of Jesus, if your own life seems dry and unprofitable, then do what Mary did, get down on your knees before Jesus, give him your all, pour out your life before him. If you give him your life, then you will inevitably become a blessing to all about you. 
Listen, Mary is blessing us today, is she not? I mean, just what she did 2,000 years ago continues to be a blessing, continues to permeate the room, if you will, of churches around the world on countless Sundays when this passage is read or this passage is, 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 is proclaimed and preached. She's remembered, uh, she's remembered as that, that woman who loved Jesus so much. What are you going to be remembered for? What am I going to be remembered for? When we're dead and gone, what story are they going to be talking about us? What stories are they going to be telling about us? Are they going to be telling some, just some silly stories about things we used to do or you know, this funny incident or this or that? Or, you know, or, or are they going to say, man, that, I never met anybody who loved Jesus as much as that guy. I, I never met anybody who loved Jesus more than she did. And it was just evident by just the way that they lived their life. They loved Jesus. They, 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 were, they were passionately in love with Christ. That was Mary's legacy. And I hope and pray that will be our legacy as well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for how much Mary loved Jesus and how you we're so worthy of that love and Lord, nothing's changed. You, you are still worthy of that same spontaneous, sacrificial, shocking, even scandalous type of love. And we confess, Lord, that so often our, our worship of you and our devotion to you is very stale. It's, it's, it's perfunctory. It's mechanical. It's, it's, it's premeditated. It's not just spontaneous. It's not excited, it's not passionate. And so, Lord, I pray that you just make application of this story to our lives and that, Lord, people will remember us someday for how much we loved Christ. And Lord, if there's anyone here who might be like Judas, who they come to church every Sunday, they're really involved. People look up to them. They may maybe even be considered a spiritual leader here but their heart is not truly in love with Christ. They're, not only are they deceiving others, they're self-deceived. Lord, that you would just expose them for the Judas that they are so that they could repent and they could embrace Christ. Lord, that you would be merciful and gracious that there would be no one who comes here and sees everything that happens here and hears everything that goes on here and, and they would end up in hell. And so, Lord, we thank you for your word and just pray that it would accomplish its work and those of us who believe, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.